This is Michael Easley in Context. We think we're so sophisticated, but we really aren't. An ancient man and woman had the same worries, same fears, same concerns, same joys, the same expressions, and in some ways they were far, far less encumbered than we are. So when we read these hymns of antiquity, don't don't think we're so much more sophisticated. In fact, I hope you'll see that what they found joy in ought to reframe our perspective. And now your host, Dr. Michael Easley. You and I think we are unique. We think our problems are unique. We think our challenges, our individual frustrations in life, whether it's marriage, work, our children, our money, uh, the way someone has treated us, we think we have a unique situation and no one else truly understands. One of the remarkable things in the book of Psalms, it's a hymn book, by the way, one of the remarkable things is that the Hebrew dealt with the very same kinds of feelings that you and I deal with. Sure, there have been tectonic changes from the time the Psalms were written until today. Obviously, electricity, technology, uh, healthcare, all kinds of things that did not exist at the caliber, at the level, at the sophistication. But man at his core has not changed. He has joy, he has sorrows, he has hopes, he has disappointments. And as we'll see, as we continue our series, Living Life from the Heart, uh, the psalmist of Psalm 65 identifies the worshiper's problem before his God. What is the most important word, at least in this guy's opinion, what's the most important word in the Old Testament? Hesed. Um, what, is, uh, what are some of the types of classifications of psalms? Thanksgiving, we're going to look at one of those today. Praise, lament, imprecation, imprecatory, messianic, desperation. What did we look at last night? What was one of the aspects of that psalm? We're going to look at it later today too. Royal psalms. Um, what's the book of psalms called in the Hebrew Bible? Very good. Tehillim. Here. Um, and I didn't tell him. I didn't prompt it. That was just... Um, do you know what Tehillim is from? Hallel. Hallel. Hallel sounds like hallelujah. Hallel is one of the most uh, common words in the Hebrew Psalter. And Tehillim is the plural. An im, I am ending on a Hebrew word typically means many or more or multiple. Elohim. He is one God, but he is the God. Uh, so the I am ending is a little bit of a hint. So how do we get from Tephilim to Psalms? If you were to ask an Orthodox Jew the name of the book of Psalms, they might even not know the word Psalms. The Septuagint is a Greek rendering of the Hebrew Bible. The Greeks translated the Hebrew text into their, so if we took the Hebrew text and translated it into English, the Greeks translated it into Greek and that became known, the corpus of literature. There's not one Septuagint, there's many. And the Septuagint word is psalmos, psalmos, which was the closest word they could come up with, not to Tehillim, but the word mitzmor. So when you read the word psalm in your English Bible, it has nothing to do with the book of Psalms. 
But we have endeared the word in our English language, and we call them the Psalms because it means a collection of songs, a collection of rejoicing. But it's a long way from the word tehillim, which is what the Hebrews would call the book of the Psalter. They are classified into enthronement, lament, praise, prayer, worship, imprecatory, uh, royal monarch songs, inaugural psalms. And we'll look at a couple of those today. I went back last night and pulled up some of the history that I had uh, forgotten to mention last night, but it was interesting rereading it this morning. Um, You know what the monastic period was. People left the ordinary call of life and they went and lived in cloisters and monasteries. So the idea was, we'll get away from the world, won't be distracted by the wiles and temptations of the world, and we'll devote our lives to God and to Christ and you know, what they do now is they raise German shepherds and make wine and stuff like that. But early on, they used to really worship God in these monasteries. Well, the monastic period was a terrible failure. But what they tried to do in these monastic structures was to order their entire day around worship, prayer, and praise. Back in Gregorian and Roman times, they took the Psalms and put them into chants. Many of the monasteries would go through the entire psalm collection each week. And there were morning psalms and evening psalms, many of them extrapolated from the Hebrew Bible, just like we do. Like last night, we should have looked at an evening psalm, looked at a morning psalm last night. So we could envision them singing that, and you might even envision it in your imagination in those stone grottos with a bunch of men in odd clothing uh, singing these beautiful chants of these songs. So there's a rich history of the Psalms in the Catholic and Christian traditions throughout time. In the 5th century, uh, St. Maurus was, um, he, he taught Charles the Great. He was his like private religious tutor. And he made him recite the Psalm every day. So 150 Psalms, I don't know how long that would take. It takes me a little over an hour and a half to read it if I just read at a clip. And that's a fast read. Um, and I don't get much out of it reading it that quickly. So how you'd recite it in the course of a day is not, I don't understand. Um, other, uh, the Patriarch of Constantinople during 458 to 471 would not ordain anyone who didn't have the complete Psalter memorized. Uh, the Bishop of Icona, a man named Rusticus, uh, had known the Psalms by heart. And when men would come to him for ordination, he would quiz them. And if they didn't have a comprehensive knowledge to be able to answer any section of the Psalms, he would not allow them to be ordained. And by the Second Council of Nicaea, which is 587 or so after Christ's death, it became canon law. If a priest candidate couldn't recite the whole Psalms, he couldn't be a priest. And they wouldn't let a bishop go up the ranks unless he could continue a demonstration of the text. So the Psalms, of course, have have a rich, marked history. Now, we talked a little bit about some structure, just a little bit last night. What were some of the structural cues I gave you? Parallelism, where did the parallel come from? Three kinds of parallelism. The point is in the middle. So you have like A, A prime, B, B prime, C, C prime, D, D prime, E. So the point of the psalm is in the middle. And those structures are very common in the psalms, not only in the whole psalm, but often in just little sections, like verses 1 to 3, you'll see a chiastic device if you look for it. Um, We talked about loving kindness being the most important word in the Bible. What were the two things that God is loving kind toward? His covenant promises and his chosen people. God loves to be loyal to his covenant promises and his chosen people. Okay, very good. I'll let you alone now. 
Um, let's look at Psalm 65. Psalm 65 is the public hymn of thanksgiving. Some have called this a harvest psalm. I have never taught the psalm before. It was fun to prepare for it, and I thought how fitting during this time of year when soon we'll see pumpkins and squash in, in great quantities come on the shelves, and we'll all buy them and put them on our stoops, and then we'll throw them away in a few weeks. I don't understand it, but we do it nonetheless. Um, so this is the harvest season. Some various titles for the psalm, the song of harvest blessing, the bounty of the Savior. I have called it responding to God's generous blessings that we too often overlook. The psalm is going to remind you and me to look at God's generosity, to look at his blessings in your life, and not to overlook these things. Derek Kidner, if you're a person who buys books of the Bible to help you study, the two best little tools you can use on the Psalms are by Derek Kidner. They're little tiny volumes. They're not these big massive commentaries. Derek Kidner uh, teaches at Cambridge University at Histon. Um, he is a brilliant wisdom literature scholar, and he wrote these two little tiny books in the 70s, Psalm 1 to 72 and 73 to 150, and they are extraordinary. What he says in two pages, I couldn't say in a year. He just has the ability to synthesize the message down to just these little exquisite paragraphs. And if you want to get into your psalm study and you do this in, the devo in your devotions, get Derek's little books and go through them. Quick story, I, I like to write authors that have ministered to me. And years ago, in 84 or 5, I wrote uh, Dr. Kidner a letter. Now, in those days, we didn't have email, and I used an aerogram. Anyone know what an aerogram is? A couple of us. Um, aerograms were these lightweight international things. You, you could fold them and seal them, and it was like a fixed rate. And so you have to write real neatly inside. I wrote him an aerogram, and I thanked him uh, for his ministry and how much he meant to me. And I, I just loved his writing in the wisdom literature. And he wrote me back. And one of the questions I asked him was, I said, do you have any uh, sermons on tape? Because, you know, we like to listen to sermons. I'd love to hear some of your sermons on tape. And he wrote back, typically Brit, he wrote back in his letter, uh, thank you for your kind words. Regarding tapes, I have no knowledge of any such thing. Signed, Derek Kidner. <laughs> I still have the aerogram somewhere. And I've written him over uh, the years ensuing, and I get about the same kind of response. But uh, I love Derek Kidner and hope one day before glory to meet him. He's a brilliant Hebrew scholar. He writes, this psalm, a stanza as fresh and irrepressible as the fertility it describes, puts every harvest hymn to shame. We almost feel the splash of showers, the sense of springing growth about us. Yet the whole psalm has a directness. Whether it is speaking of God and his temple courts, or of his vast dominions, or among the hills and valleys, which his very passing wakens into life. God just moves across something and it comes alive. And that is a great depiction of the psalm. H.C. Leupold writes, we venture the claim, this is the most eloquent and beautiful description of God's blessing that he, that he bestows on fields and meadows. Now, we think we're fairly sophisticated people. We have, uh, to me, the two greatest blessings God has given to man 
are the person and work of Jesus Christ and air conditioning. Uh, the South could not exist if it were not for air conditioning. Houston could not exist if it were not for air conditioning. And Baton Rouge could not exist if it were not for air conditioning. And um, when we see our technological advances, the microwave, digital technology, even if, if you watch Marty play, there are certain pieces of technology here that are extraordinary. And we grow accustomed to them. Even this little gizmo has come such a long way from when we used to have them down here. And when you turn your... And then we come back up. And so you had to learn to speak like this because the technology couldn't keep up with you. We think we're so sophisticated, but we really aren't. An ancient man and woman had the same worries, the same fears, the same concerns, the same joys, the same expressions. And in some ways, they were far, far less encumbered than we are. So when we read these hymns of antiquity, don't, don't think we're so much more sophisticated. In fact, I hope you'll see that what they found joy in ought to reframe our perspective. We ought to learn to see some pretty basic joy in life like the Hebrew of the ancient world did. Well, let's look at the psalm. Let me begin, first of all, by reading the first four verses of Psalm 65. There will be silence before you, and praise in Zion, O God. And to you the vow will be performed, O you who hear prayer. To you all men come. Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, you forgive them. How blessed is the one whom you choose to bring near to you, to dwell in your courts. We will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. Now the first part of this psalm is that God hears and forgives. Our God hears and forgives. This is a psalm of blessing God for his generosity to us. And the psalmist begins by acknowledging that, God, you hear our prayers, you forgive my sins, and you bless, bless us lavishly. Now, this is an unusual phrase because it begins with this idea of silence. There will be silence before you and praise in Zion. And, of course, as Americans, we rush right over the word silence. Some of your Bibles might say, await, uh, that praise awaits you, or praise is due to you. And both those are legitimate renderings. I like the word silence. Uh, there's another comprehensive set of commentaries that are huge by Kyle and Delitzsch, two German scholars who lived in the 1800s. And uh, Del Dr. Delitzsch writes, silence is praise. Uh, we don't think about the idea of being silent as being an aspect of praise. Silence is what? It's expectation. Silence is rest. Silence involves awe. Um, some of you are in the military or have been. I had a, a number of tremendous experiences in the military. And um, I, was I, I got to attend a seminar called the National Security Forum in Montgomery, Alabama a few years ago. And um, it was a huge auditorium, three or four times the size of this, completely full of men and women who are many on their way to be officers. 
And they're talking and buzzing, and it's all a real, you know, raucous environment. And then a, a young lieutenant walks in, and as soon as he does, it goes quiet, and then here's the general behind him, and everybody stands up, and it's dead quiet. And he goes, oh, sit down, sit down, sit down. And everybody sits down. Uh, but there's a silence when the general walks in the room. If you've had the um, educational experience of being in a trial, maybe as a juror, when the judge walks in the room, you get quiet. There's certain things in life we just intuitively know, shh, be quiet. Someone of respect has come into the room. Now, I don't know if you're comfortable with silence. Last night, I loved what Marty did. In fact, when Marty started this, I thought, oh no, this is not going to work. Remember what he did? He said, some of you just stand up and give a little, you know, shout out, we might say. And I'm going, oh, these things never work. They never work. They never work. They're, they ne- they're all- some person's going to soliloquy. You watch it. Some person's going to get up and preach a sermon. You watch it. And he gave good instruction, and the Spirit of God controlled you. And I was over there in tears, hearing God's people bless God. I was moved. And there was a silence about that. He's just playing. It makes it look so stinking easy, doesn't it? I can't do any of that stuff. And he just, oh, and he led us in worship. It overwhelmed me. Interesting how worship does that. But the hardest part is waiting for that first person to say something, right? You die a thousand deaths. Will anybody say something? I also noticed that the women outnumbered the men about five to one in the comments. That's another subject. But Again, Derek Kidner writes, Sometimes the height of worship will be to fall silent before God in awe. Sometimes you just got to be quiet. Now, I don't know if you're like me. If you have the gift of gab, God bless you. It's a terrible thing. And you like to hear yourself talk, and that's the worst thing in the world. And you hope God gives you children who love to listen, because otherwise it's miserable. But as I get older, you know when I realize how much I talk is when I'm around someone who talks more than me. <laughs> and you can ask Cindy this. I'll, t- I'll say, do I talk that much? And she'll say, Mm, no, <laughs> which means almost. <laughs> and sometimes you get around people that just, they don't breathe. They just talk. It's like they got an extra air pump in there. <laughs> and some of it's fine and mostly entertaining. But why are we so uncomfortable with silence? There'll be silence before Yahweh. Praise is becoming, but the psalmist in an unusual passage says, be silent. There is an aspect of worship that stands in awe, that is quiet in awe, as the young men in Job's time put their hand over their mouth. They were speechless when they heard him speak. He was so wise and powerful. And there's times when you read the word of God in the morning or you're overwhelmed by the beauty of your surroundings or your cup of coffee looking out your window or your prayer closet and you're just quiet. It's a wonderful, rare thing. 
I think, for most believers. The psalmist is calling on Israel to Zion in verse 1. This is the place the vow will be performed. Zion becomes synonymous with the worship center of Yahweh Elohim. It is the place he puts his name. You can only worship where he puts his name. How many of you have been to Israel? Did you go to Tel Dan, the Dan Tel? If you remember Dantel, you walked in the wilderness, you walked over some rocks, it was muddy and green, you felt like you were out in the jungle if you went to Tel Dan. Tel Dan is one of my single favorite sites, because not only is it much like it was in antiquity, um, when you come to the, to the area on the north of Tel Dan that borders Syria and Jordan, you can, on a clear day you can see Syria and Jordan over to the far east uh, you know, the Far East, um, there's, a, there's a steel structure that the antiquities have built that is a square box that would be about the size of the altar complex that was put in Dan that was illegitimate. And we know, archaeologically, this is the very place, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, remember your biblical history? And instead of making people go all the way down to Zion to worship, we'll put a temple complex here so we'll, we'll collect the dues, basically, and not send people to worship at the place. God, God didn't want that there. And as the kingdom is split, it shows an illustration of worship is split. God's worship is ruined. You will worship me where I tell you and only where I tell you to worship me. And it will be in Zion. If you've been to Israel, when you go down to the Sea of Galilee, there are, uh, there's an area on the north part of the sea where you go, and there are a bunch of stones of antiquity. They were there in Jesus' day. These rocks were there in Jesus' day. And there's one particular stone that has a picture of the ark with two wheels on it and a cart. You don't move the ark with wheels. You move the ark with poles. And in just a few years after Christ's coming, syncretism leaks in. And you roll it around. You build temple complexes after the kingdom splits. No, you only worship him where his name is. The psalmist says Zion is where the vow will be performed because that's where God puts his name. I want you to notice the second person pronouns in this list. And these, again, are just observations you make when you read your Bible. Look at the number of times they occur. You, verse 1. Verse 2, O you who hear prayer, to you all men come. Verse 3, you forgive them. How blessed is the one you choose to dwell in your courts, your house, your holy temple. And what I literally do is take a pencil and I circle these sections. Because the way the structure is, there, this is about God. And he's, in, he's vertical, you, your, you. And you'll see other times, I, me, my. And they'll talk about other people. So the, the psalm is taking on a vertical nature. You, you, you. Be silent before you. You the one who forgives our sins. Then the psalm will flatten. He'll talk about the evil and the wicked. Then he'll talk about himself. These are very easy to pick up when you study the psalm. My greatest hope and prayer as you listen to this series is that you will get out a pen and a pencil or maybe several pens and you'll start to mark up your Bible. If you were to look at my Psalm 65 in my current Bible, you would see every one of the second person pronouns, you, circled in pencil. You'd see key verbs underlined in blue. You'd see lines that connect the dots for me visually. Because when I read and reread these Psalms, I want to remember and see what I once saw. 
because morning by morning, new verses I read. I forget everything I read. So I find that taking notes in the margins help me as I come back to the Word of God. I hope you'll find Psalm 65 a lot more enjoyable and a lot more encouraging as we continue living life from the heart. This is Michael Easley in context. Thank you for listening to Michael Easley in context. If you have questions or comments, please let us know at michaelincontext.com. Follow Michael on Twitter at Dr. Easley. Thank you for listening to Michael Easley in Context.